The Constellation, Episode 10. The Trip. Dave and Carl are sitting on the grass in the park, looking at the news on their phones. What do you think's going to happen? asks Carl. You mean, after all this? Yeah, says Carl. Well, we don't even know if there's going to be an after. There's so much pressure on people. It's like a, what's it called, a, a double bind. Cognitive dissonance, says Dave. How do you know that one? says Carl. I've been reading your books for the last two months. But yeah, exactly. Cognitive dissonance. On the one hand, there's stay alert, control the virus, don't do anything silly. With incredibly complicated rules, at least in the UK. On the other, there's so much pressure to go back to work, to kickstart the economy again. And then, there's this movement pleading for the positive aspects of the lockdown. Clean air, less carbon, less stress. And on the other hand, a lot of people have had enough of being stuck in their shitty flat with their kids, no money and nowhere to go. That's four hands, says Dave. It's a quadruple bind. And imagine, you're talking about Europe here. What must it be like in India or Africa? Yeah, says Carl, things are already kicking off in the US. Black riots all over the place. White protests against the lockdown. It could be carnage. It really feels like a time for a revolution. But on the other hand, it might just turn out to be even more shit. I've got some good news, though, says Dave. Phil and Baz have been arrested. What? Yeah, for people smuggling. Maybe they did look at that note I sent them. Anyway, that means I can probably go back soon. At least they won't be after me. You'd have to do quarantine, says Carl. Shit, yeah. Have to order enough food to last two weeks. Oh, I can get Gus to go and do some shopping for me in advance. Do you know what I miss? 
Yorkshire pudding, says Carl. No, not really. The hills. Being able to walk almost from my house through the woods and out into the Peak District. Brussels is pretty green, but yeah, I know what you mean. In other cities, you always have to go beyond the ring roads before you get anywhere interesting. Do you still... you sometimes take acid and go for a walk, says Carl. I haven't done acid since the 90s. I just haven't been in the mood to reprogram my head. I think it's alright as it is. Do you remember, says Carl, must have been 85? Of course I do. It was 1986. In Gus's kitchen, Carl was still wondering if it was really such a good idea. He'd been reading up on the use of LSD, along with sensory deprivation and acoustic weapons, by the CIA and by the British in Northern Ireland. And it didn't sound like much fun. He hated putting himself in situations where he wasn't in control of things, like fairground rides, for instance, and he expected that an acid trip would be a bit like that. But he'd kind of promised Gus that he would join him, it was Gus's first time as well, of course. And he trusted Dave. He would look after them. I promise it'll be okay, said Dave. More than okay. It's going to be fantastic. It's a beautiful day. Here, we'd better do it now. He took out a cigarette packet, emptied it onto the table, and pulled away the foil. Underneath, was a small piece of paper. Got a pair of scissors? Dave cut the paper into six. Carl saw that his had a little blue star of David on it. Have you got the same? Yeah, said Gus. Kosher acid. The kosher acid test, says Carol. Carl put it on his tongue, sucked a little, and then swallowed. It was absolutely tasteless. Um, how long? 40-50 minutes, said Dave. They drank some coffee and tea and put a few provisions in bags. Don't take anything expensive. Don't take a bank card. Wear walking boots. Take a warm jumper. Some cash. Some emergency food and a bottle of water, David told them. It was about half an hour after they'd started walking through the park that it started to work. Carl had had a feverish pain in his neck for the last 20 minutes or so. At first, he thought he was getting the flu, but he felt the cramp move upwards and into his ears. There was something going on in there, as if the sound from outside was getting stuck in the tubes and rolling around echoing. He yawned widely 
and the sound jumped outside his head again. The woods sounded like a dub record, woodland in dub. Birds, footsteps, voices echoing between the trees and sizzling over his head. There was a noise like an enormous owl coming closer and closer. And then Gus ran past going into the distance. There was a higher sound too, like singing. Listen, said Mary. The souls of dead children are here somewhere, somewhere in the trees. After a while they came to a stream, and Carol and Mary ran off towards it, giggling. When they came back, they painted their faces with stripes of mud. They belonged to some ancient tribe, all of them, and this was their stream. Dave was walking behind, keeping an eye out. It was Carl, Mary and Gus's first time. And although he was equally off his tits, he thought to himself, he was a pro. He felt that he was a shaman, except that traditionally they went on a spiritual journey and brought things back for the tribe. He was actually taking his tribe on that journey. It was quite a responsibility. Turn up to the right now, through the trees, he told them, and they clambered up the slope. He didn't need a map. Maps were useless anyway while tripping. That layer of abstraction was one too much. It was the landscape told you where to go. Paths hidden to normal mortals were suddenly revealed by a strange light or colour change. Shortcuts called your name. Mountainsides could be scaled in seconds. On the other hand, last time he came out this way, he'd been stuck in a marsh for about an hour. Each footstep took a whole minute, and he'd been afraid of being sucked under. But you could never tell. Time and space were relative, especially on LSD. Carl's legs felt like rubber. He looked down at them with surprise, amazing that such elastic things could hold him up. And the world was so sharp. Every detail in every corner of his eye was sharply defined, so much so that his visual field wrapped around his head into a kind of globe, like his head was in a fisheye lens, he thought. He realised that this globe, this world around his head, was just one of many worlds, and he could, with a little effort, move up or down into a different world, like slipping between different realities. He was just trying to move sideways when Dave took his arm. What you up to, mate? he asked. Your feet are all wet. And Carl felt the cold water flowing into his boots, cold and shiny as steel between his toes. Liquid steel, he thought, as he allowed Dave to pull him out of the stream and lead him squelching up the path again. 
Soon, they came out of the woods to a main road, and Dave thought it was a good idea to pause for a drink. There was a pub here with a garden. It was lunchtime and it was quite busy, but if he managed to get them all into the garden without incident, then maybe he'd be able to order some drinks. He wouldn't ask them what they wanted. They wouldn't know. Somehow, he got them all sitting at a wooden picnic table, went in and, although confused by the signs behind the bar, which were all written in the Egyptian hieroglyphics, he managed to order five lager and limes. Everyone in there was looking at him strangely, especially when he gave them a £10 note and walked off without the change, but he managed it. When he got back to the table, Mary was missing. Gone to the loo, said Carol. They sat and drank and stared at the table for a while, trying to avoid eye contact with the locals. David finished his drink and Mary still hadn't come back, so he asked Carol to check if she was okay. After a few minutes, Carol came back with Mary, but also with Zed. Oh no, that guy, thought Dave. Where the fuck did he come from? I thought Mary said he'd moved to Manchester. Hey, said Zed. All right. They all stared at him as if he was an alien. This pub was his local, and he didn't really know what they were all doing here. He'd moved house yesterday, and he'd just driven the van back over the Snake Pass. He'd just come back to Sheffield to clean out his flat, and he was going to catch a train back in the evening. Thought he'd have a pint, as it was a nice day. He'd just got his drink when he turned to see Mary coming out of the loos. It was an incredible stroke of luck, because he'd never seen her out this way. She hadn't said much. She seemed moody, looked a bit odd, and she had some mud on her face. He couldn't figure out Mary's friends. They were either really intense or, like now, not really present in the real world. He felt that Mary really was out of his reach. And after all, he'd made the decision weeks ago to move away to Manchester to play in his mate's band, Cuboid. But he thought he could still try and persuade her. After all, Chris had said that they were the perfect match and he really felt a connection. It would be throwing everything away not to try. The group stood up as if they were remote controlled walked out of the pub garden and up the road. Mary was walking, holding the other girl's hand. Zed guessed that she was doing it to wind him up. But he thought he'd tag along anyway. He had loads of time, and maybe he'd get a chance to talk to her properly. Carl followed Dave through a gap in a dry stone wall. Mr Quiff from the church was following them. Best to ignore him totally, thought Carl. Don't want bad vibes. Now they were walking through a forest plantation. He could smell the resin mixing with the buzz of insects. They came across a fire break and followed it uphill through the pines. The woods seemed endless. Their footsteps were silent on the pine needles. Carl could hear the soft echoes of the voices of his friends around him, 
like a warm blanket. It was so quiet in the woods that Carol could hear her own heartbeat. It got louder and louder, like one of those Moroccan drums, the bendir. She saw that everyone else could hear it too, because they were all moving uphill to the same rhythm. Suddenly, in front of them, behind a wire fence, an incredible view opened up. A panorama of hills with no sign of human habitation. They were the first humans ever to have seen this site. Dave led them across some moorland towards some large rocks, which they climbed and sat on in the sun. Come and look, says Dave. On the top of this big rock, there's some Bronze Age markings. Bullshit, thought Zed. He hadn't climbed a rock. They were acting like a load of kids. Carl climbed up and looked. He ran his hands over the cupped and spiralling forms. It was as if he was moving his hand through water. The rock flowed around his fingers. So people had been here before. He jumped down and kicked at the flinty white stones and moss around the rock. Something tinkled, a piece of metal. Carl picked it up. It was triangular, sharp, like an arrowhead. A Bronze Age arrowhead, he thought, and put it into his pocket, where it poked into his thigh. Carl suddenly felt tired. So tired that he thought he might fall over. So he crouched carefully, slowly shifting his weight onto his arse, leaned on his side and then lay down on his back. Carl was so used to being an individual, a loner. But here he was, with his friends, and he realised that they were all connected. He could listen through Gus's ears, look through Mary's eyes. His subjectivity was literally all over the place. It was pretty disturbing. He looked up at the sky and watched the clouds for a long time. They were under his control, which made him feel more like himself. The clouds could move faster or slower. He could adjust the contrast of the sky. It was like trying out all the possibilities of experimental film and video with his own eyes. Most impressive of all, he could pretend that he was not lying down, but standing up, his back against a green wall of moss and grass. He looked down at his feet and realised that there was nothing under them. He was hanging onto the edge of a sheer drop that finished at the horizon. He clung on for dear life. If he could just shift gravity back, shift the earth back to where it was supposed to be, then it would be okay, but it wouldn't shift. He could see Zed 
and Mary out of the corner of his eye. They were perpendicular to him. If he could only move himself through 90 degrees. Every time he looked down at his toes, he got a fright. He decided to close his eyes and wait. He'd been there for a while already when Dave noticed him. Carl's back was arched, his legs in a strange position, and his hands were clawing at the ground. Dave went over to him. Carl, you're okay? We just need to get you back. He grabbed him by the shoulders and pulled him so that he was sitting up. Let go and open your eyes, he said. Remember, you're in control. You can make it happen. You just have to will it. I tried, stammered Carl, once he'd righted himself. But I was stuck. Where's Gus? I'm afraid you're going to have to help me. He's stuck too, said Dave. He sounded worried. Gus was sitting on top of one of the big rocks, staring and rocking backwards and forwards. Carol had her hand on his shoulder, was trying to talk him out of it. It seemed he was in some kind of a catatonic state, but that wasn't the case. Gus was involved in a staring match with a metallic pyramid that had grown out of the stone. In the middle of the pyramid was an eye, and it was staring him down. He hadn't expected to come across the Illuminati upon ringing low more, but here they were again, waiting for him. He tried to remember the Kabbalistic spell that would make them disappear. There's nothing we can do, said Dave. We'll just have to wait for him to come back. From nowhere he produced a bar of chocolate, which he broke and passed around. Like Jesus with the bread and the fishes, he thought. Gus turned his head. He took a square of chocolate and popped it into his mouth. After a few seconds he said, that's the best chocolate ever, ever. He shivered and suddenly seemed to be back to his normal self. They slid off the rocks and moved slowly down the hill towards Mary and Zed, who were standing by some trees next to a stream. As they approached, they heard the argument. Zed had realised by now that they were all tripping, and he was furious with Mary. How could she do something like that, he asked. Take those chemicals into her body? It's against all of the teaching. I'm not even in your fucking church, Mary shouted. Carol took Mary by the hand and led her away, further down the hill. Zed was standing there speechless, shaking his head. As the others walked past, Gus stopped and turned towards Zed, meaning to say something, something that would make him go away, leave them all alone. Zed's face was red. He was really angry now, and he grabbed Gus's jacket, pulling him towards him. Gus looked up at Zed's quiff, which had turned into a kind of creature sitting on his head. The quiff was pulling faces at him. Gus laughed. Zed pulled one hand free, ready to punch, and Gus tried to push him away. Zed slipped and fell backwards. He grabbed Gus's jacket and they both 
tumbled into the stream. The water wasn't very deep, but underneath was a thick, peaty layer. As they struggled with each other and with trying to breathe, they were sucked down into the peat. Dave, who was already about 50 metres away down the hill, heard a shout and turned around to see splashing and Gus's legs sticking out of the stream. He ran back and pulled him out. Gus was black with peat, his clothes dripping wet. He looked like a bog man. He coughed and spluttered, but got up and stumbled down the hill without a word. There was no sign of Zed. Dave paused, looking at the surface of the water, which was bubbling slightly. He looked around and decided not to investigate further. Carl, Mary and Carol were walking quickly downstream now, talking about something completely different. There was a noise behind them. They turned to see a black, slimy monster running towards them. Mary screamed, but Carol said, It's okay, look, it's only Gus. Suddenly they were all laughing. They got him to lie down in the heather and washed him in the cold water, giggling. A mile further on, Mary remembered Zed. What happened to Zed? Dunno, says Dave. He must have gone back down to the pub. The landscape spread out invitingly beneath them. They could see the path to take like a meandering river of light curling through the heather the bracken and the grasses. Mary's eyes followed the curves of the path and realised that they were the same curves as in the ferns at their feet. That was called self-similarity, she thought, like fractals. Not only were they humans, all made up of atoms, particles, but they were like stars, stars in space, held in place by gravity and other strange forces. We're all connected, said Mary, like a constellation. But there are some stars missing today. Toby should be here, and B, and the Jimmies. The walk back to the city took them hours. It seemed like days, like a pilgrimage. Gus wasn't saying much, but he seemed otherwise okay. Walking along the main road, coming down a little, Carl said, hey look, 
I found an arrowhead up there. And he looked in his pockets. But he couldn't find it anymore. It didn't matter. Nothing mattered. Almost back in civilization. Dave took them off-piste once more, up a little hill. On the top were some benches with a view over the city. As the sun went down behind them, the city lit up like gold. It's Rome, said Carol. El Dorado, said Carl. They were all exhausted but happy. In love with life and with each other. It was a day they would never forget. will return later in the year.